1 Samuel 21. This is the account of when David was saved from the hand of the king of Gath. Starting in verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now right away, Psalm 34 says Abimelech. Every scholar I read says that this is referring to King Achish. And that Abimelech is likely a similar title to that of Pharaoh. Whereas there are many kings of Egypt, they're all called Pharaoh. Similarly, there are many kings, this particular one being named Achish, that took the title Abimelech, which in Hebrew means, my father is king. So, And you'll see this in Genesis. We'll look at it uh, also today. But there are many kings that take this title. It's not likely a proper name. So, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Then going into 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in doubt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Now, this psalm is apparently written in celebration of the Lord delivering David from this event, being in front of King Achish. The text does not comment on the morality of pretending to be insane, and so I'm not going to comment on it. (laughs) But we see the Lord celebrates the deliver, or David celebrates the deliverance nonetheless. And that's really going to be the focus. He was in an impossible situation, he did what he did, and the Lord brought him out of it. And he's got nothing but praise in response to this. So please stand as we sing, or as we read (laughs) from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, starting in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life 
and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of, delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Pray that you would, in spite of my weakness, in spite of my frailty, meet with your people. Minister to your people. Bless them as they have come to hear you speak to them this Lord's Day from your word. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as you have hopefully gathered from the readings and the comments made so far, our primary focus is going to be on the fear of the Lord this morning. No shortage of comments on it. If I were to ask you to think of a famous quote about fear, you likely think of FDR. And he says, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Perhaps, at least more interesting to me, there was a horror writer, a horror genre author from the last century. His name was H.P. Lovecraft. He had this to say, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And certainly, there is some worldly wisdom to be had here, but what does the Word of God have to say about fear? There's a lot in the Scriptures about fear. If you just do a simple word count, you're going to find fear to be among the most used words in the Bible as a whole. And many of those usages have to do with the fear of the Lord. When we're looking at our topic for this morning, this psalm, I want us to see this as an introduction to the subject of the fear of the Lord. We're not going to say everything that we could say here. There's too much that could be said. There's so many passages that refer to this. And if it's something you want to know more about, as Providence would have it, we are in a book study in the afternoon services, Rejoice and Tremble, which is on this very subject. I would invite you to take the book and read it. I would invite you to come to the afternoon services and learn with us. But this morning, this is more of a sky-high view of the fear of the Lord. Looking at Psalm 34, why are we looking at this here? Just scanning through the psalm quickly, we see in the first three verses, David is responding to the deliverance he just received from King Achish. He could have been executed. And he follows up this praise within verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. We see the concept of fear introduced. 
He more or less repeats this sentiment in verse 6 and in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Right away we see some interesting things going on. Because in verse 4, he's rescued from all his fears, but evidently not all, because he still fears the Lord in verse 7. But as we're going to find out, the fear of the Lord is in a category all its own that allows him to say what he says about being delivered from all his fears because of his fear of the Lord, essentially. Moving down, the psalm is perhaps best known for the beautiful words in verse 8, which are quoted by Peter in the New Testament, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him, but these words are immediately followed by a command in verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. And this should strike us immediately. There is no contradiction in David's mind between O taste and see that the Lord is good, and oh, fear Him, you His saints. There's no contradiction. There's hardly any tension. Verse 11 is what really brought me into this line of thinking that I couldn't get it out of my mind. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If we want to know what the fear of the Lord is, David is going to endeavor to teach on it specifically in the following verses. And then you get to the closing verses and we're kind of wrapping up the psalm as a whole in its teaching. Interestingly, this psalm is an acrostic psalm. There aren't a ton of them. And what that means is that each verse, uh, it's like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, begins with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And we don't know exactly why different psalmists do this, but one of the reasons that I find compelling is that it's a statement just using this form that I'm attempting to broadly address a certain thing. And we do this today. If I, Well, I had this, the title of the sermon, The Fear of the Lord from A to Z. The idea that there's a broad treatment of this subject. And it helps with memorization, especially if you know the language. But that's how I want to walk through this psalm today. The idea that this is a broad introduction to the subject of the fear of the Lord. So, if it helps, here's the outline that I've made. In verses 1-7, through we're seeing those who fear the Lord are always praising God in all circumstances. Those who fear God are always praising God in all circumstances. In verses 8-10, through we see those who fear God are blessed, blessed in God's provision. In verses 11-18, through we see those who fear God are compliant with God's Word. And in verses 19-22, through 22, we see those who fear God are delivered from their afflictions. And so I hope this will serve as a skeletal framework as we go through our text. Let's begin in the first few verses. Psalm 34, verses 1-3. through 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. David's response to being rescued from Abimelech, or Achish, is to declare unending praise to the Lord. It might be a natural question to ask, why is this, David has been through so much, why is this occasion in particular an occasion to offer perpetual praise to God? And it's because it's salvation. 
Throughout the Bible, we see that salvation is used in multiple senses, and this is a salvation for David. He thought he was dead. He was at the doorstep of one of his most hated enemies. He really should have been killed, and yet he was delivered. And so the response when we are saved, when we don't deserve being saved, we ought to have been destroyed, is praise. And David recognizes and celebrates the kindness of God shown in his salvation, offering the praise that God is owed. And as we think about it, it can be easy to make this trite. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. These are easy words to say. But we all know that life is hard. There are occasions, there are circumstances where we don't want to praise the Lord. And in case we are afraid of seeing this as trite, I don't think David, I don't think we can say that of David, that these are trite words for him to say, I will praise the Lord in all circumstances. He had a hard life. Just to remind you of some of the things he experienced, he was driven into the wilderness for years from the wicked King Saul, which actually occasioned him fleeing Israel to Gath, where King Achish was. Jonathan, his best friend, dies in battle. He commits a horrible affair with Bathsheba and follows that up by murdering her husband so that he can marry her and cover up the new pregnancy. And loses his first son to Bathsheba to the Lord's judgment while he's still young. He witnesses his eldest son, Amnon, violate one of his daughters, Tamar. One of his other sons, Absalom, murders Amnon in vengeance and flees. When Absalom does return, he starts a rebellion, does horrible things to the family. David still loves his son, Absalom, and has to deal with the tragedy of losing him in battle. He has to deal with treacherous Joab, who's constantly causing David more problems than he may be helping. He brings judgment on the people of Israel towards the end of his reign for presumptuously numbering the people. We think this is the man who tells us, I will praise the Lord in all circumstances. He had very difficult circumstances to be praising the Lord in. And it's a wonderful model for us. That whatever circumstances we face, we should look to David and see that he, could, he at least strove. He, it was his desire to praise the Lord in all circumstances. We should pursue doing the same. Why is it important to be reminded to strive for constant praise? The, an idea comes to my mind. Businesses, the the biggest businesses, there's no such thing as coasting, right? We're always trying to acquire more. We're always trying to build more. The best athletes, there's no such thing as coasting. If I'm going to continue to be at my game, I have to not coast, but actually improve. Get bigger, faster, and stronger. And we see a principle here. There is no such thing as coasting period. And spiritually speaking, what I'm getting at is if we are not praising God, it's not like we're just going to be content. We're actually much more inclined if we're not actively praising God, driving our minds to see what good things He's done for us, 
we're actually going to slump into grumbling, practically, right? If I am not driving my mind and my affections to praise God, I'm not just going to be content. I'm going to be like the Israelites, the Hebrews in Numbers 14, when they came to the promised land. What did they do? They heard about the, the might of the Canaanites and they said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And to think about the wickedness of this. And in context of the fear of the Lord, to think how little fear of the Lord must be in a people that has witnessed what they've seen in Egypt and gets to the promised land and hears that the Canaanites are tall and mighty and powerful and instead of saying, I just saw God blot out the sun in Egypt. I just saw God bury the mightiest army in the world in the, in the Red Sea. He tells us we're going in, we're going in. But no, they grumble, they complain, and they rebel. When we, can, we continue to consider in verse 2, praising God continually, there is a posture that's necessary for this. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. When we consider David, think, remember 1 Samuel 21, what are they talking about as David's coming up? They're playing Israel's greatest hits. The number one song in Israel, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And everybody knew this. Everybody was saying this. David was important. And earlier in Samuel, in 1 Samuel 13, we read, But now your, Saul's kingdom, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Who is that man? It's David. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. David is the one they're remembering the song about, how mighty he is. If there's anybody that has grounds to boast in anything of himself, it's David. And when he comes here, he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Not in my might, not in my victories, not in the holiness that people seem to see in me and are thankful for. Let the humble hear and be glad. If we are going to be in a state of constant praise of God, if we're going to be in a proper posture to fear God, God has to be big. We have to be small. And that's what we're seeing in verse 2. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And so we see right away, Fear of the Lord and pride are not compatible. They do not mix. Those who fear the Lord are in some capacity always praising the Lord and seek to see Him as big as we can conceive and in comparison see ourselves as small. And this reality causes David to further celebrate the kindness of God in verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me. This is the reason for the praise that we see in verses 1-3. through three. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. 
the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David celebrates that the Lord has delivered him from all his fears. All his fears. What fears might David have had? Well, easy one. He feared death, right? He's in front of King Abimelech. He's worried he's going to be killed. Fear number one, death. Verse 5. Their faces shall never be ashamed. There's fear of shame, right? That he's delivered from. Verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. What's another fear that we can see here? Fear that the Lord won't hear him. Fear of the abandonment of the Lord. So I'm seeing in this small section a fear of death, a fear of shame, and a fear of abandonment from the Lord. How did David attain deliverance from these fears? I sought the Lord. Those who look to him are radiant. This poor man cried. If we want to be delivered from the fears that we see here, there is a simple calling out to the Lord. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Who is the angel of the Lord? This is no mere normal angel. There are two texts I want to go to. The first is Genesis 16. This is... Really a beautiful text in Genesis 16. As you're turning there, this is the account of what happens to Hagar after she's kicked out of the camp because of Sarai's jealousy. Verse 7, chapter 16. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness and the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God of seeing. Other translations, you might have it in the footnote. You are the God who sees me. Being kicked out of this camp, she feels like no one sees her. She's abandoned completely. But the Lord sees her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. So we see she names the Lord here. The Lord who sees. The Lord who sees me. If you want something as explicit as we can possibly get about the identity of of the angel of the Lord, go to Judges 13. Judges 13, this is... Uh, Samuel's parents, when the angel of the Lord visits them. Judges 13. We'll go to verse 21 and 22. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We we shall surely die 
for we have seen God. So, get this. He sees the angel of the Lord. He says, we have seen God. Now, back in Psalm 34. What is David really saying here? It would be a wonderful thing in and of itself if David had angels guarding us. David is saying something stronger than that. It's the Lord Himself who encamps around those who fear Him. It's the Lord Himself who delivers them. So in verse 4, we see that the Lord delivered David from all his fears. In verse 7, we see that the Lord personally protects those who fear Him. So, to pause and ask the question, what about you? What do you fear? What are your fears here this morning? Outside of Christ, there are those here who do not know Him this morning. There is nothing for you but the terrifying fear and wrath of God. Fear of death? Revelation 20 speaks of the second death. And all those who are not found in the Lamb's book of life will die the second death. There's no respite from the fear of death outside of Christ. Luke 9, fear of shame. Christ says those who are ashamed of Him in this life, He will be ashamed of in the day of judgment. There is no respite from the fear of shame outside of Christ. Matthew 7, those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in Your name? Did we not prophesy in Your name? He says to them, depart from Me, I never knew You, you workers of iniquity. Without Christ, there is no respite from the fear of utter separation from God. But of course, this means in Christ, there's deliverance from all of these. Hebrews 2 is beautiful in this. Are you afraid of death? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Explicit rescue from the fear of death, and even better, death itself in Christ. Are you afraid of being shamed and humiliated, your name being tarnished? Eternally. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no shame. It's been cast away. Are you afraid of losing the Lord's presence? Are you afraid that He does not hear you? 1 Peter 5 Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. If you are here this morning almost crying out, how can I be delivered from all my fears? How can I be saved from death, from shame, and from the absence of God? You do the same thing David did. You, like David, should seek Him. You, like David, should look to Him. You, like this poor man, cry. Cry out to the Lord. Romans 10, 9-13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we understand here, this deliverance from all our fears is available, and not available through some great transaction that we can't afford, not available through some mighty feats that we can never perform. It's available to those who cry out and believe. And for those who cry out and believe, the Lord Himself encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Is it any wonder then that David is brought to even greater heights of praise when contemplating the deliverance God provides for His people in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When you're reading the wisdom literature, when you're reading the Psalms, uh, Proverbs especially, Good term to have in your mind is Hebrew parallelism. Means, like, especially the Proverbs. One verse. It seems to be saying the same thing, but it words it differently. That's on purpose. A lot of repetition. And I think if we pause here, we're going to see in these three verses strong parallelism. So, first, the provision of the Lord. See in verse 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 9, those who fear him will have no lack. Verse 10, the lions suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord or seek the Lord lack no good thing. We see refuge and lacking for no good thing for those who seek the Lord. How is this so? Surely this is not true in a prosperity gospel sense. Not everyone who fears the Lord has fancy cars, huge houses, and whatever else we might categorize as a good thing. That's because the definition of a good thing is not ours to fill in. The definition of what is a good thing is the Lord's definition to fill in. And this text is so important, not just to memorize for the purpose of decorating our walls and our coffee cups, but to believe it in all circumstances... We know that for those who love God, all things work together good for those who are called according to His purpose. For God's people, pressing into Him, calling to Him, everything is worked for your good. And in Him you lack no good thing. Furthermore, if we are saved from death, shame, and separation from God, our priorities are a little different. The good things we might think we lack look a little pathetic in comparison when we've been handed freedom from death, freedom from shame, and total communion with God. We think of Paul in Philippians 4 when he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. 
And that, the verse is so much better in its context. Rather than out of its context applied to whatever trite thing we might stick it to. How hard is it to be content in all things? You might say it's impossible. But the beauty here is we're told that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including being content in every situation. How about more parallelism in these verses? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord, you His saints. And you see in verse 10, those who seek the Lord. And I would argue with you this morning, or to you, or present to you, however you want to word it. He's saying the same thing. To taste and see that He is good is to fear Him. To fear Him is to seek Him in a biblical, godly way to fear Him. To seek Him is to taste and see that He is good. All of these things are the same. Seeking the Lord is to taste and see that He is good and to fear Him. And Remember what we saw in verse 7, that the Lord delivers those who fear Him. You might find yourself at this point, especially if you've not been participating in the afternoon services, what on earth does this word fear mean? It seems to be used in ways that I wouldn't use this word. Basic reading comprehension demands that in this psalm, we're not reading it correctly if we replace the word fear with terror. Oh, be terrified of the Lord, you His saints, for those who are terrified of Him have no lack. That doesn't seem to capture the sense of what's going on here. So we're not talking about the idea that we're commanded to like flinchingly look up to heaven every time we screw up and just wait for His hand to smack us down and be brutalized. That's not what we're talking about. To get a sense of this, let's go to Genesis 3. This is really a helpful text when considering the fear of God and what we make of this. Genesis 3. I assume you all know what's going on here. The fall. Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit and so cast all of creation into sin. And after they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, in verse 8 of chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now we do understand the presence of God is terrifying to those who are not made right with him. To those who are not in right relationship with Him, there is nothing more terrifying than God's presence. So there's a sense in which it is natural for Adam to do what he did. To put some pathetic covering on himself, to hope that God doesn't notice he's naked, and to flee from His presence and hide. It's totally natural. Just imagine if he didn't do this. Imagine a different scenario where He doesn't attempt to cover himself up. He continues to be out in the open. And when God shows up, he's like, hey, Lord, what's up? How's it going? Acts like nothing happened. 
We should instinctively know that's not a proper reaction either. That's, that's insanity. That's like me getting in a pen with a gorilla thinking I'm going to wrestle it. I'm going to get my arms pulled off. Like I, <laughs> I can't do anything to it. That's like getting in a tank with a shark and thinking that I can fight the shark in the water. It's insanity. It's standing in front of a coming train and thinking that I'll be fine. This train's going to bend and swerve off to the side. You're not comprehending reality. And so, a proper response was not that. And what Adam did was not good. What was he to do? What should Adam have done? Well, he shouldn't have just sat there and pretended nothing happened. He shouldn't have fled. He should do what we've already talked about. Seek the Lord. Verse 4 of Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse, 34, or verse 6 of Psalm 34, This poor man cried, and if there was any poor man, would it certainly have been Adam. Created in moral uprightness, not inclined to sin, and yet found himself the federal head of fallen humanity. Certainly if there's a poor man, it's Adam. If only he'd done what we see in Psalm 34. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. While it is natural for sinners to scurry in their sin as far from God as they can get, it is not good. Right? What would be good? Is to flee to Him. Lord, save me, a wretched sinner. Lord, I cry to You, deliver me from all my fears. That is what would be good. The fear of God we see in this psalm is a fear that does not drive away the fearful, but draws them in. And we think, well, we're still, this word usage is still weird. It's almost synonymous with the word love in its usage here. And it's interesting if we think that way because we saw Psalm 33 last time I was up here. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. Again, Hebrew parallelism, saying the same thing. Those who fear Him are the ones who are hoping in His steadfast love. Well, maybe we can get a bit more help as we come to where David endeavors to teach us in verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He is teaching us what the fear of the Lord is here. At least partially. And in large part, what he's saying is that fear of the Lord is inseparable from obedience to God. There's a lot more we can say, but there's not less than we can say than that. We cannot say less than that. Really fascinating text is Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and thus they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God, at Horeb, 
the Lord said to me, gather the people that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children to do so. So again, we see this connection. Fear of the Lord and obedience. They have to be held together. Well, is this an Old Testament thing? <laughs> like, certainly we come to the New Testament and it's all about love, right? Not in that sense. <laughs> Colossians 3, verses 18-23. through Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Again, obey what God has said. One of the reasons to do so, because you fear Him. As much as we have emphasized that a biblical and righteous fear of the Lord drives us closer to God and not farther away, this absolutely cannot be interpreted as to mean that God is soft on our sin. It cannot be interpreted that way at all. Uh, to see a different Abimelech, uh, Je Genesis 20, there's an interesting phrase that Abraham uses here. Remember, this is where... Uh, Abraham is afraid of going into this pagan territory and he still esteems his wife as to be so good looking that he fears for his life around all these pagans that might kill him and take his wife. So he devises this plan that's not really beneficial to her but beneficial to him and says that she's my sister. Abimelech, of course, is preserved by the Lord from touching her. And we get to verse 10 in Genesis 20. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Why did you do this? Abraham said in verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And so from very early on, he says, There's no fear of God here. And you guys, I don't trust you at all. <laughs> and so... Yeah, that's why I did this. Now, you could question how much Abraham feared God, that he felt he could do this. But nonetheless, he was driven to do this because he saw a total lack of fear of God in Abimelech and his people. For another illustration, just to mention the name Ravi Zacharias. I don't, now, to quickly follow that with, I have not followed all the stories about him. I don't know what is true and what is not true. But just to give you the picture in your mind of an illustration. If there were a minister that felt that he was entitled to indulge in sexual sin because of all the great work he was doing for the Lord. And those are the allegations. That he felt that he could indulge in sexual sin because of all the great work that he was doing for the Lord. If that's true... We could say many things about such a man. And one of them would be, there ain't an ounce of the fear of the Lord in such a man. There is no fear of God in a man that could do such a thing. To think that I'm entitled to my sin because of all that I do for God, he, he understands. He gets it. I just need this release. I just need this 
part of my life that's mine. There's no fear of God in him. There's no recognition of the holiness of God. There's no recognition of the God that you are dealing with. Perhaps equally as striking as Deuteronomy 21. You can turn there if you want. But Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 18. One of the harder to read passages in the law. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of this city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Consider, I'm sure this was done at least once. So let's assume this was done at least once. What were the other sons and daughters of Israel supposed to do in the aftermath of such a thing? Was the expectation that they would be utterly terrified and want nothing to do with God because they witnessed such a thing? When I hope that you would recognize that's not what the proper response would have been. Instead, the other sons and daughters of Israel... I think should have understood what we know in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And then with this understanding, they were supposed to press further into the Lord in holy fear, knowing that those who fear the Lord will be delivered from all their fears, but those who do not have a biblical fear of the Lord, there's destruction. And for God's people... We are to purge the evil from our midst. Obviously, in the New Testament, we don't do executions. We do do excommunication. Purge the evil from the midst. As much as we have seen how the word fear in Psalm 34 means much more than its basic and straightforward meaning, we must remember that this word is still used. Its basic meaning still has some bearing on our relationship with God. And so there is a sense in which the straightforward meaning of the word fear informs how we relate to Him. It's not buddy Jesus. This is why I'm so interested in the conversation about the violation of the second commandment. Images of Christ. Do we fear Him? Or are we bringing Him down to our level with how He's portrayed in so many ways and so many fashions? Do we lose a fear of God when we put Him on posters and on t-shirts and have other actors act like Jesus? I think we do. Even as believers who have been bought by the blood of Christ, there is a sense in which the fear of God should drive us more to a position where we dare not indulge pet sins and nurture them rather than aggressively hunt down our sins and put them to death. And this is where we come to Hebrews 10 that Caleb read for us this morning. Just looking at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately 
After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? And just think about that. We just read the execution of rebellious children. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is what we really look at in the the illustration we brought up earlier, the minister who thinks he can indulge in sexual sin because he's owed this release because of his work. It's true of any of you that think that there's a sin in my life, but it's okay, it's not a big deal, I can just keep this, and the Lord's fine with it. We're not talking about, we're not talking about sinning and hating it and seeking to put it to death no matter how many times it takes us to put the same sin to death, what we're talking about here is peace with sin and saying, I'm not going to put it to death. This is my sin. I'm going to enjoy it. The Lord doesn't have jurisdiction here. And there are terrifying words in Hebrews 10 for someone in that position. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now we ask again, what do we do with this fear? Do I scurry away in terror? Do I seek shelter under a rock? No, the last verse of Hebrews 10 is beautiful. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. God is awesome. And in the original sense of the word, we could even say terrible. Invoking terror. But the proper response is not to flee but to press in and to taste and see that He is good. Verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And it's just awesome in these verses. David He gives a warning. It's a strong warning. Um, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But the overwhelming emphasis is press in. He's near to the brokenhearted. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and He delivers them. Come, taste and see. Seek Him. Cry out like the poor man you are and be delivered from your fears. There are threatenings that need to be taken seriously, but come. He's good. Trying to get to the end here in verses 19 through 21. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Even with the Lord delivering us from all our fears, even with the Lord encamped around those who fear Him, even with us taking refuge in the Lord and fearing Him, who withholds no good thing from His people, the people of God will be afflicted. There's still affliction that comes on His people. He doesn't promise comfort. He doesn't promise peace with the world. 
But He does promise that we will lack no good thing. He does promise refuge. And beautifully here, He promises us to bring us safely home. Think the, the language, uh, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. When we arrive into the new heavens, new earth, we'll be whole. Totally and completely whole. All of our infirmities will be wiped away. John, we heard Brother Jabello read from this this morning, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I will bring them safely home. Do you believe this? This is the end of the gospel. This is what the gospel is pointing to. Communion with our Savior. We read this last week in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Remembering H.P. Lovecraft's quote, that fear is a fear of the unknown. Well, we know our Savior. And we will know Him all the more as we press into Him for all eternity. We believe this. And we believe this because we have a perfect and risen Savior. He's pointed to explicitly in these verses. John 19, verses 33-36. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. But one of the soldiers pierced His side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. While we struggle to fear God according to what David teaches in this chapter, our Savior was the perfect God-fearer. You might not think of it that way. But Isaiah 11 There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We're talking about Jesus, right? Isaiah 11. Root from the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus' delight was the fear of the Lord. And as always, we are so thankful that He perfectly fulfilled everything that Adam was supposed to do, everything that we are supposed to do, so that in Him we are the righteousness of God. In Him we can draw near. And because He was the perfect sacrifice, the final Passover lamb for the sins of all His people, we can believe the last verse of this psalm, which stands apart from the acrostic, As a last word for David's readers, the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And we, like David, will be delivered from all our fears. Whatever keeps you up at night, you can lay it at Jesus' feet. He has conquered death, and He will withhold no good thing from you. There is no death that awaits God's people. There is no shame that awaits God's people. And there is perfect communion with the Lord for all eternity. So as Pastor Caleb comes up to administer the Lord's Supper to us, I invite you, you who fear the Lord this morning, 
to taste and see that He is good. Let us pray.